David Yoakum here. How would you spend a billion dollars? That's a question for Rhode Islanders, as this government decides how to allocate $1.1 billion of funding from the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA. Every state in the U.S. is facing similar choices, often with substantially larger amounts in bigger states. No offense, little roadie. Today, though, I'm handing off the mic at 30,000 Leagues to a couple guest co-hosts, my colleagues Jonathan Wilmer and Lisa Vera Weiss. Jonathan was a Rhode Island budget director before recently coming over to the Policy Lab as senior advisor and head of budgeting. And Lisa also held a variety of leadership positions in Rhode Island government before heading over to Boston Consulting Group as partner and associate director. They're joined by Michael DBAs, president and CEO of the Rhode Island Public Expenditure Council, and Linda Katz, co-founder and policy director of the Economic Progress Institute, who helped co-author a report with the Rhode Island Foundation called Make It Happen, Investing for Rhode Island's Future. This podcast dives into that report. It's a combination of policy analysis and public stakeholder input, culminating in a set of spending recommendations about housing, behavioral health, workforce development, and more. We'll see how many millions got recommended for supporting this podcast. Welcome to 30,000 Leagues. Well, welcome, everybody. Thank you very much. With us today, we have Linda Katz from the Economic Progress Institute and Mike DBAs from RIPEC here to talk about the American Rescue Plan Act funds and the potential allocation recommended by the Rhode Island Foundation. With that, I'd love to give an opportunity for Mike and Linda just to intro themselves and uh, talk a little bit about what brought them here. Hi, I'm Michael, the President and CEO of the Rhode Island Public Expenditure Council, and we work to, to support this Rhode Island Foundation initiative. And Linda Katz, I'm the Policy Director um, and Co-Founder of the Economic Progress Institute, and we were um, asked by Rhode Island Foundation to help staff this initiative along with RIPEC. Well, in word, Jonathan Wilmer and Lisa Vera Weiss. I'll, I'm with the Policy Lab here that's uh, sponsoring this 30,000 Leagues podcast. Lisa, you want to? Thank you, Jonathan. I'm Lisa Vera Weiss. I'm a partner and associate director at the Boston Consulting Group, but had the great pleasure of working with Jonathan and Mike directly and Linda as a my favorite advocate and stakeholder uh, for Rhode Island state governments when I was in Governor Raimondo's administration. So very happy to be back with old friends today to talk about this funding. So I thought we'd start off for just a little bit, given a little bit of uh, a background on the American Rescue Plan. So this is an allocation of uh, $1.1 billion to the state of Rhode Island, uh, not to be confused with some of the infrastructure bills and social infrastructure bills that are still pending in Congress. We got this allocation in March and April uh, of this year. And there's been a lot of discussion about how the state should invest this for the, the future. Just a little bit of uh, particular background on it. These funds have got to be obligated by the end of the calendar year in 2024 and spent by the end of 2026. There are five main areas that the U.S. Treasury has put guidance together on for the allocation of these funds, a public health response to the pandemic, economic impacts of the pandemic and offsetting them, uh, paying essential workers premium pay, replacing lost public sector revenue, which is a, a little bit complicated, but allows generally that the funds could be spent on almost any topic, and then support for water, sewer, and, and broadband. 
Mike and Linda, how did you get involved in the Rhode Island Foundation effort to make recommendations on the use of these funds? I'll start. I, I, I had some discussions with Neil Steinberg, who's the president of Rhode Island Foundation, early on about these funds and the importance of investing them smartly. And then those discussions led to Neil inviting us to participate. And then I think soon thereafter, Economic Progress Institute was brought on. And we were happy to join the effort. It was much more time-consuming than I think we expected it to be. But I think what's interesting is that, you know, EPI and RIPEC are often thought of as rivals. And I think, bottom line, we have the same mission, which is the well-being of Rhode Islanders and the health of our economy. So we may have different approaches sometimes to doing that. But this initiative, I I think for Rachel Flum, my colleague at EPI, who was the other person helping to staff this, was that it it was really a process that that brought together a lot of different ideas and approaches to come up with, with agreements across a wide range of perspectives about how the state could use these funds really for transformational change and also to promote what is very clear in the Treasury guidance, which is the goal is to rebuild a stronger, more equitable economy. So the focus on equity is really important. Mm -hmm. On that note, there were a number of interviews done by, by your organizations. There's a pretty broad stakeholder group. There was a an official advisory committee. How did you make sure to get the views of not just the usual suspects, but a broader representation of Rhode Island? EPI and RIPEC did a number of interviews with various stakeholders. You know, we knew, for example, that the housing folks were thinking about ideas, so we had many interviews with them. We interviewed some state agencies. I realize these are the usual suspects. But we, the, there were also interviews, there were focus groups that were convened, um, around Rhode Island that were intentionally um, diverse as to populations and, and to geography, and then also another initiative to work with nonprofits around the state to bring together people in their community to hold what were called visioning sessions, just to hear from a diverse population of people about what their needs were. And I would add that the steering committee, if you look at the membership, was not, I guess, what you'd call usual suspects of these types of groups, so they weren't there by and large representing particular special interests, but instead I think Neil tried to put together a group of people that he thought were kind of broader thinkers, and so we had that benefit as well. So the wide-ranging interviews were some of the most amazing (laughs) pieces of this. I mean, just really getting in all that input. How did you go through the process of whittling down, like, you know, which ideas really should make it into the report and were the, the, the best choices for Rhode Island? So, you know, we brought the ideas from the interviews back to the steering committee members, and it was sort of a back-and-forth vetting process. And if they wanted more information, we were able to go out and get some more information for them. But it started with sort of broad brush of input that had come in through when Rhode Island Foundation first announced the initiative, people were emailing and giving information. And there was, um, so from that, sort of the group whittled down to several buckets, and then we dove deeper into those buckets, so around housing and behavioral health, workforce. And I'll say that the topics shouldn't be surprising to people because they are issues that have been on the radar screen for a long time, even pre-pandemic. And they were certainly the same sort of 
issues that came up in talking to folks. But it was the steering committee that made decisions about which areas to invest in and then the specific investments over the course of meetings. Yeah, and I would say one of the more difficult things was sifting through Very early on, we decided and the committee decided that these should be sustainable. They should be consistent with one-time investments. And when you get out there talking to the stakeholders, many of their recommendations are for continuing spending and obligations. So that's a hard, you know, in in government services, government programs, the idea of one-time funding is, is, is more challenging for sure. And Linda, you mentioned the the main bucket. So the there were four main buckets from a topical area that the report recommended. The first and with the largest amount of funding is housing with four hundred and five million dollars, behavioral health at two hundred and fifty five million, workforce at two hundred and five and small business at a hundred million dollars. And then in addition to the the topic areas, there are two additional funds that are recommended neighborhood trusts, which would go towards communities that had been hard hit by COVID-19. That's a $50 million recommendation and immediate relief, another $50 million for nonprofits and and other organizations that are uh, serving Rhode Islanders and facing immediate needs in terms of workforce or, or funding for programs. So a lot of really great stuff. There, there must have been some things that you wish you could have had another bucket for that didn't quite make the list. And, and other states that are using or recommending the use for things like lead pipes, for broadband, how did you find that drawing of the line for what's in and what's out? Well, one easy way of drawing what was out was where funds are, other funds are being appropriated through ARPA. So for K-12 education, which of course would rise to the top of anybody's list, there are funds that are going directly to ride of $432 million, the majority of which $374 million is going directly to the LEAs. So we took K-12 education off, off the list. Not to say that some of those funds, state funds, couldn't be used to supplement, but it didn't seem like a good place to start. When you, you mentioned, Lisa, um, lead pipes that actually is in part of the recommendations, or lead, lead paint is in the recommendations, but not lead pipes. So the other sort of governing factor was, are funds going to be made available through the other federal funds, either Build Back Better or the infrastructure? And so we didn't put funding into those areas where we believed other funds are going to be coming from the federal government. Mm-hmm. Would you expect to change any of the recommendations or, you know, or think through the process depending on how those infrastructure bills pass? Yeah, I would say yeah, I would say we assume that the infrastructure bill mm-hmm. will pass in some fashion. So I think if it didn't, you'd have to revisit these recommendations and probably move some things around. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important to emphasize that th- these are just these are recommendations from a broad thwas- swath of Rhode Islanders, but it's ultimately the General Assembly and the governor who will decide what to do with these recommendations. And and, and, you know, the appropriations of the funds. So certainly as the governor in building his budgets and the General Assembly in reviewing those budgets and making appropriations, we'll need to be taking into account, certainly in 20, for 2013, I'm sorry, 2023, what funds may be coming in from the other federal programs, and if not, then adjust the use of some of the ARPA funds. So, for example, broadband. While the, the state ARPA funds can be used for broadband, we didn't really include that, but if federal funds don't come through for our for broadband, hopefully the General Assembly and the governor would make sure that that's a priority. 
Well, with that, do you guys want to start moving into some of the recommendations and talking about some of the specifics? Sure. You want to I guess start I with can, housing? Yeah, I guess I can start with, with housing. We, you know, we recommended the largest investment in housing, $405 million, which is you know, nearly 40% of the total. So I think that really reflects the urgency and magnitude of the problem, which I think it's our most urgent social problem, not only in Rhode Island and the country. It's, it's an area of housing that we haven't really, in my opinion, put a lot of resources behind if you compare it to some er- other areas like food insecurity and and health and uh, so that and it also kind of is suited to one-time resources at least the capital side certainly there's a whole rental assistance need out there so so that's where we we put a lot in that bucket and about half of that in affordable rental housing production and preservation so I mean we could certainly get into the details on some of those. Well, one one question is the report targets about 5,000 new units of affordable housing. How far do you think that would get us towards the need? Is it is it all the way there? Is it halfway there? Yeah, and I think in, the reason why I'm doing the talking is because Linda and I have divvied up some of these, so I'm not, <laughs> I'm not trying to keep her from talking. You know, there, there are bigger numbers that have been thrown out in terms of the need for Rhode Island. I think there's some debate as to actually what we need. I would say that our recommendations really didn't attack the kind of the bigger supply issue because our focus was really more on affordable housing. We wanted to address the needs of the, the people most in, in need of, of housing. So I think, you know, there is this, there is this much bigger complex picture of supply. I, I would just say that, that supply can do a lot. It, it's limited to how much it can actually affect this issue, in my opinion, and I maybe a minority on this, that it's really a mismatch of the income of renters and the affordability of rental housing. So, for example, if we built 5,000 units tomorrow, how much would our rents actually come down? And so I think we need to, we need to address the supply side of this, but I think it's, it's a much more complex issue than just building more housing. Yeah, I agree with that. I also just as a as a note, I know the National Low Income Housing Coalition documented that in 2019, Rhode Island had a shortage of 19,000 units of housing for households at or below 50 percent of AMI. So we have a long way to go. And also, you know, this was an area where Rhode Island had not been investing for years. Again, thinking pre-pandemic, we were always behind our neighboring states in terms of state investments for affordable housing. And it was just last year, you know, there were the housing bonds that happened, but it was only last year that Rhode Island included in its budget an an ongoing source of housing production funds with the passage of the Housing Production Fund and funded by the real estate conveyance tax on an ongoing basis and starting with $25 million in funds. So, you know, we're catching up and and we we have a long way to go. And, you know, hopefully this money helps to really move us along, um, and then we need to continue to have investments. And as you think about, it was a hard-won permanent funding stream. That's been a a goal of of housing advocates for years and very exciting when it it passed. One of the questions is, with that funding, with the previous bond referenda funding still, some of it sitting in the bank, 
and potential additional funding through ARPA, how do you think about getting the money out the door quickly enough to make an impact? Yeah, I would say that particularly in this area, housing, we need to pay attention to that. And we have money, but this is a fairly thin group of players in affordable housing in terms of the number of developers, which we we seem to rely heavily on just nonprofit developers, and also the staff at Rhode Island Housing, the staff and the various nonprofits that are in this. So I, I do think that, that we need to pay attention to this. And you can just look and see how we, you know, how slowly we, we move out the, the bond funds each year, which seems to take a very long time. And I, I think building the capacity that within state government to have leadership roles and then supporting staff to work on not only a plan, but being able to get the money out the door quickly now is is important. And a position was created, a deputy commissioner for housing, that's, I, I hear, is on the verge of being appointed. So certainly with that leadership, it'll be helpful. But it's also pretty clear that that person's going to need some staff to be able to help do the work and bring together the disparate pieces around housing. And- As somewhat of a segue into our next topic of behavioral health, there is a recommendation in the housing section to build a significant amount of permanent supportive housing. Typically, permanent supportive housing is a housing first model trying to get folks who are homeless or in unsafe housing into more safe housing. It also includes wraparound support services, for example, mental health counseling. It could include other social determinants supports. How do you think, this gets back to Mike's point earlier about one-time versus ongoing costs. The building of of permanent supportive housing is clearly a a one-time investment, but there are ongoing costs and and really provider resources needed. How did you think about that wraparound infrastructure for the permanent supportive housing in the context of the recommendations? I think what we were trying to do in this area and in the behavioral health area is to try to take out the, the, the facilities or the real estate costs so that the providers in this area perhaps could concentrate their resources. And and there are significant resources, mostly federal, for services here. There may not be enough, and, you know, we may need to supply more. But in both of these areas, if we took out the, the facility side as much as possible, then, you know, for example, behavioral health providers or, or homeless services providers could then concentrate their resources more on the services side and not so much on the on the facilities. So, I mean, that's a that's not an entirely satisfying approach, but when you're dealing with one-time funds, you have you have some limitations. I will say the steering committee was very leaned in pretty heavily on homelessness and the recommended we have 50 million which we think could arguably take care of the current capital Costs. So it's, you know, homelessness is a desperate and serious problem, but not as daunting in terms of this, the financial resources needed than, for example, affordable housing, which is just a massive challenge. So segueing into that behavioral health topic, there are, as I mentioned, $255 million recommended for behavioral health. The, the biggest proportion is for facilities. And looking at both state and nonprofit residential treatment facilities, you know, Linda, I'm curious, a lot of the advocacy around behavioral health has been for more community-based services, meaning outpatient resources, and the, the, the recommendations are focused more on residential facilities. 
how did you think about that from a investment standpoint? Well, actually, the facilities here means community-based facilities. So we learned from work that EOHHS had been doing with the state agencies. They had been developing a plan for continuum of care for, for kids, for youth. And there is a gap in terms of not having residential facility for substance use and behavioral health treatment of teenagers. So those kids are, are sent out of state by DCYF. So some of this is building in-state, community-based residential facilities that are necessary that you know we learned from our interviews with state agency and, and community providers. The other part of the, res- of the facilities investment is really to strengthen the network of community mental health centers. So the community health centers have been recipients of a lot of federal funds to make those facilities, you know, places that are very welcoming to people and not appearing to be the place where poor people go, right? The community mental health centers, on the other hand, have not been the beneficiaries of federal funds. So the facility um, investments here are to help the community mental health centers upgrade their facilities. And we heard from some of the providers that the building that they operate in might be state-owned and the state has not kept up the property. Some might be privately owned um, or owned by the nonprofit, and they also have needs. So it's very much community-based facility, either upgrades of the places where people go on a daily basis or the residential facilities that are needed to have the allow the continuum of care. And there's also a need for some residential interim, you know, step-down facilities for for adults as well. Mm-hmm. That's Thank you. That's a really helpful explanation of, of where the funding would go. And one of the other recommendations in this section is really around the workforce, right? There's investments in, in the physical plants are important, but we need to make sure we have the providers who can, who can staff those facilities, staff the outpatient centers to treat Rhode Islanders. Can you talk a little bit about the recommendation on behavioral health workforce? Sure. So I think it's, it's two parts. One is to ensure that we are recruiting and retaining ethnically um, and racially diverse providers to meet the needs of, the, of population. And the second issue is to address the rates that are paid to behavioral health providers. We don't say that Medicaid should increase the rates paid to providers, but that is certainly something we heard over and over again, that the rates are not sufficient. And so the recommendation is to undertake a study to look at what those rates should be. Will that implicate spending over the long term? Yes. But this recommendation is sort of the one time, let's take a look and and figure out what the state needs to do to make sure that we have an adequate array of providers across the skill spectrum. In terms of ongoing costs, I think this is a a broader question about how you track impact, which is, in theory and ideally, these investments in community-based services, in community behavioral health workforce, will actually reduce spending in the more acute care settings in the short, medium, or long run. And even more importantly, improve the health outcomes of people with behavioral health needs in Rhode Island. How do you think about looking at that system to say, well, these these investments upstream have reduced costs at the acute settings, therefore we should be able to use the same budget and <laughs> not increase costs over time? Well, I, one investment that we're proposing is to have electronic medical records at the community-based health centers, uh, mental health centers. And again, 
And that's critical both to be able to do that sort of tracking that you're talking about, Lisa, and to make sure that there's um, that there's better care across the continuum for the patients. I think it would be incumbent then on the state agencies um, that are responsible for behavioral health to set up the metrics and to be able to look at this over time and determine, you know, that that these investments with a mobile treatment team, for example, is helping to reduce the number of people who, who would be showing up in emergency rooms. Yeah, I think, I think when you step back from the system, you see a lot of inefficiencies in places where we can reallocate where we're spending money. For example, Eleanor Slater Hospital, extremely high costs. Emergency room care of people with behavioral health needs, extremely high costs. But I think there's also a serious question as to you know, either within all of our spending on health or health and human services or in our budget as a whole, whether we're devoting enough resources in total to this area. And so that is kind of beyond the scope. I and mean, we did as best we could with one-time money to try to address what we thought was appropriate here. But that's definitely a much bigger question about rates, both private insurance rates, government rates for these services, access. And that's, you know, so I I would just say that I think we made some very important recommendations here, but it's really only part of the picture in terms of addressing this system. And it also reflects that this is the most urgent need that we heard, I mean, from our stakeholder interviews, certainly way way more than public health, way more than issues relating to seniors. So this this really stood out. Yeah. And again, it's an issue that the behavioral health issues predated COVID, right? We didn't really have in place um, for kids or for adults really effective ways of serving those populations and meeting needs in lower cost settings and in ways that people um, wanted to participate. But then certainly COVID exacerbated the, the, the mental health part of things and substance use, right, with the opioid crisis and so forth. So there's been a lot of attention paid to that. But there is, again, predated in terms of not having a really efficient and quality behavioral health system, which we once had in Rhode Island. And so part of this is, you know, getting back to what we used to do. We used to have very effective mobile treatment teams, for example. And that way of delivering service went away over time. Well, the potential is exciting. And I know we worked on uh, BHLink, which was a very first step towards that type of mobile outreach towards a non-emergency room setting for behavioral health crises. I'm going to turn it now over to Jonathan, who's going to help us walk through the workforce development and small business sections of the report. So we've divided up this as well a little bit. So particular on workforce, $205 million investment. Maybe you could give a little bit of background about what the strategy was here, especially, you know, in the context of the discussion earlier of, you know, one-time funds versus permanent funding and, and how, you know, you, you're envisioning the, the workforce development programs working here. So, you know, I think these investments are over the the lifetime of the ARPA fund, so in the next four budget years, to really um, ramp up investments in workforce development and to try to give people who are unemployed, underemployed, the skills they need to succeed and, and to create the workforce that employers are looking for. So, you know, and to do something that's really very different. So the 
the investment for the earn and learn job training is to move away from what we've been doing, which is to invest in providing the workers that an employer needs with just the skills that the employer is looking for. So Real Jobs has had some successes, certainly, in placing people into jobs, but it's been very much demand-driven. The focus here is really to shift the way the state is doing workforce development to look at this uh, learn-and-earn model, which means increasing apprenticeships, which have been growing over the past years from just construction into non-trades type of areas. So for example, teachers, there could be an apprenticeship program for teachers. So somebody is learning on the job as a teacher and getting the skills that they need. They're being paid while they're learning on the job. So expanding the apprenticeship model, expanding other opportunities for while somebody is working, also developing skills that are portable for them or credentials that they can take other places. I mean, this is more than just addressing the people who are out of work right now, but responding to what we know is that, and has been the case for a while, that many people are going to need at least two years post-secondary training or education in order to succeed in, in the economy. And the economy is shifting. So this is sort of like, let's shake it up. Let's think about different ways of preparing um, the workforce for the jobs for today and the jobs for the future. Yeah, and I'd like to add that. So we talked about housing and and, uh, behavioral health, and I would say that this is, you know, an area of workforce development of of similar urgency if you look at our economy. We have have a workforce or population of relatively low skill and – low education attainment, at least compared to our neighbors in New England, perhaps not to the United States as a whole, which is which is kind of low as a whole. So so it's you know, the challenge is what do you do with one time funds? Because workforce development is usually a continuing obligation. So we thought about sort of a big burst approach here where you kind of do a whole bunch of stuff in a short period of time. And the people you touch and the people who you invest in do have a lasting return on that investment because they have those training. But it is very much a big burst kind of approach. We do have uh, some funds here to continue the Rhode Island Reconnect program. That's just a one-year sort of investment. It's uh, $15 million. That, I think, our thinking there was to try to get our job market back to as close as possible pre-pandemic. So we have we have about 25,000 jobs short right now pre-pandemic. So that that is really more of an urgent sort of thing than than an, a long-term investment, just trying to get people back to the workforce. Okay. Well, the Earn and Learn program, I mean, you know, certainly is has got some some great evidence-backed descriptions that that are out there. I mean, I, we certainly love to see that here in the in the policy lab. The apprenticeship model is far more common in 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 Europe, and it's it's got a lot of strong background. I think it looks like just from kind of doing a little bit of math that you're envisioning about six thousand people participating in in that program. Just you know because the cost of, of 25-ish thousand dollars a piece, which is about 10 times higher than the, the cost of, of real jobs. But what I hear you saying is that it really provides a, a significant number of more opportunities for, for a class of individuals that haven't had access to this sort of thing before. Yeah, and it's on right. top of all the existing programs. 
too. Right. So we have all the existing programs here. Well, and it, it, the reason it's more expensive is that it's not just the training cost, it's also the, the wage cost. And mm-hmm. to, to continue to build apprenticeship models really requires, may require some investments as well, you know, to engage employers to be willing to do this, as well as, you know, re- recruiting pe- people to participate in the oversight and developing curricula, et cetera. So it's, um, you're right, Jonathan, that, you know, compared to Europe, we have, in 2018, the U.S. had 230,000 new registered apprenticeships compared to um, Germany, which had 2 million, if you compare per capita, and the U.K., 3 million. So it is a model that really would sort of shake up um, the way we do business and let Rhode Island be a leader in being able to do that with adults and think about different occupations in which this can happen, IT, education, healthcare. We also, in, in the workforce development funds, have $30 million that's really targeted to people with lower skills. So again, an earn and learn model called RIBEST, which is a <laughs> proven model of helping lower skilled individuals get education as well as while they're working. Rhode Island has started the RIBEST model here, modeled on Washington State. So there's funds to try to expand that. And also to, we learned during the pandemic that the network of adult education providers, you know, they really rose to the challenge of doing virtual learning for people. And they have now learned that they can do things like continue virtual learning for people who want um, English language skills, literacy skills. We have 6,000 students that are served by that network. And we have 31,000 working age adults who speak English less than well or not at all. So this is an untapped th- – these are people who need to be recognized and be provided with the English language skills that they need to, to continue to, to move forward. I was hoping you guys could, could touch a little bit on the, the Data Hub investment that you have in here for $10 million. Your one thing is being a, a former OMB director here in this state that I you know, always get frustrated with, and I, you know, I'm sure – Linda, you run into this too, is trying to find data mm-hmm. on you know how programs are operating, how things are linked together, and just being able to understand what it is that we're accomplishing or where we have gaps in the state. And, and data is the only way you can do that. So if you could just talk for a couple of minutes about kind of what you're envisioning with that investment, I think some viewers would find that really interesting. Except they're not viewers, they're really <laughs> listeners, so we'll have to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. You Go okay. Ahead. So, you know, we, we do have a data hub at, that's operated out of URI now. And so there, there is that longitudinal data system, but it really needs some more support to be able to, to gather the data that they need and to do reports and to be able to make that data usable for people. And then we have a separate uh, ecosystem of information about people through EOHHS. So, and I, I will say that when we spoke to Commissioner Gilkey, who had, was really, is very interested in making sure that we have a longitudinal data system to see how people are doing th- through that educational pipeline, we, this recommendation is to provide some funds so that those two data systems can be linked and integrated, and that's what the funding is for. So absolutely, we need the data to be able to drive policy and make investments. If I could jump in, you know, just to make make it really tangible, some of the work that the ecosystem was able to do were things like, because the, they had linked data sets across health and human services, what are the types of demographic or medical system interactions that might help us understand which children are at risk of abuse and neglect? 
And so one of the findings was that kids who aren't going to their standard primary care visits are at more risk. And it's not uh, a judgment on the families. It's just these may be families that are struggling. If they're struggling to get their child to a, a well visit, they may be struggling to provide for their children's other needs. And so allowing that targeting of intervention is incredibly important. And I guess, what are some of the types of interventions or evaluations you may be able to do with not just that health and human services data, but also with the data hub LinkedIn? I, I think we, in, in integrating the health issue with the educational issue, it would give us the opportunity to target where there are kids not doing well in school and looking at the health issues that are related to that and perhaps identify interventions that would maybe result in having a school-based health clinic. So there could be the integration of health and education. That might be one example. Yeah, and I, I would add that, and it's great that we're at the policy lab, which is, <laughs> which is a data place. I think you'll see a number of recommendations here. For example, the the electronic medical records. I mean, IT data systems is a good place for one-time investments. Obviously, you have to maintain them. And actually, this recommendation, we'd have to have some money eventually to to pick up this work. But also, there's a lot in this report on strategic planning. And I will say that, you know, some of the providers and people in this area argue against these things. They say, you know, we already know what we need to do. Or they say, we already have the information, and it's just, you know, in many of these areas, it's just not true. I mean, we just don't have a plan, and actually we don't have good data to put a plan together in a lot of places. So this could be, this could be a very powerful tool, particularly if we're trying to upgrade um, skills and education to find out, you know, where are those gaps? Like where, you know, for example, if, if, if students from not-so-great suburban school systems actually are doing pretty well in the end, then maybe the resources don't need to be put there, but maybe there's other other types of, you know, data trends that, that can help us focus resources better. So I, I think there's, there's a, a lot that can be done here, and I think IT is a place where I don't need to tell you, both of you, it's very hard to get those investments if you yeah. don't have this one-time kind of sidecar amount of money that you could, that could, that you could deploy. Well, you know, it's particularly timely because there have been a number of investments just with earlier stimulus dollars and in the pandemic to ramp up some IT and in particular some, you know, cloud-based data warehousing to enable it. So this is a really uh, fertile time for that, that sort of thing right now. The other thing is the American Rescue Plan puts some requirements on states to do some performance analysis of these programs that get stood up. So one thing that they they ask us to do, I mean, I say us, not being <laughs> part of government anymore, but, you know, Free the, the broader us, is is to, to really track the outcomes and the impacts. There's not a lot of systems in place currently, and there's a lot of flexibility in these funds to stand that up. Do you think this investment in the data hub work could help also just facilitate the reporting and and understanding these investments that you've you've put mm -hmm. on the table. Yeah, we would hope so. Yeah, we hope that, hope it would help in that area. Right. I think part of it will depend on the timing of being able to do it. I mean, we'll need tracking, but you know, bigger picture tracking. Yes, if we can stand these up and we could see at the end of four years, yeah, this is what we've done, and here's what we need to do moving forward. That would be great. 
Well, let's move on to some of the, the small business investments that, that you were recommending. I kind of maybe could start with a little bit of an overview and, and what your perspective was, but I'm particularly curious as if, if the general push was to try to help small businesses directly recover from the pandemic, or was there more emphasis on sort of a, to borrow the Biden administration mantra to, you know, to build back uh, better and to, to really be able to hit the, hit the ground running as the economy recovers? That's a good question. I think certainly recovering from the pandemic was important because because we saw the toll that small businesses, particularly minority-owned businesses, the toll on them from the pandemic, a lot of them went under. It is a key part of our economy, and certainly, once again, getting back to minority-owned businesses are financially fragile. And so I do think that you know we, we do, you know, these are one-time funds, so we're trying to kind of give them a one-time jolt to make them make them stronger going forward. So, you know, in this, I think there's something around, you know, 2,000 envisioned grants and loans, you know, put together. I know in, in past, as we've been trying to get more money out to small businesses, there's been a lot of discussion about, about timing and speed and, and, and logistics. How do you sort of envision some of the, the timing and logistics of, of these investments working? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a very legitimate point that, you know, the administrative capacity and expense of running a lot of small grants uh, and applications is is kind of a high bar, and I think we have to pay attention to that. I think, you know, what we found when we were dealing in this area is, I mean, everyone loves small businesses and wants to help them, but actually we have very little government policy that is directed in that way. It's mostly a lot of assistance, advice, and support, and a lot of Loans, some of them, you know, fairly easy to get, so long as you're bankable and have good financial records, which we find a lot of businesses don't have. So, you know, there's there's just not a lot of great models about you know about helping small businesses. So we focused on capital with some forgivable loans and actual business services because we think that you know what we heard is that these that there is plenty of advice and guidance out there, but what they actually need are actual business services. They need somebody to do the payroll, not learn about how to do the payroll and go up just down the line. You know, they, they don't need to go to an accounting class necessarily. They need an accountant. So these are one-time, you know, things to kind of straighten them out. They, they're not sustainable over time, but it's kind of a way that we could maybe prop up or elevate a bunch of small businesses all at once and, and help them maybe survive for the future. And, and we also heard about interest in building cooperatives, that that's, you know, a new model that particularly communities of color, workers of color are interested in, in trying to put together, people with disabilities. So this is a way to try to support the growth of those, that business model as well. So you're speaking of the community development financial institution idea? Well, some of the, the loans could also be, the forgivable mm-hmm. loans could be supporting the cooperatives as well. Yeah, no, that, that certainly emphasizes the equity points mm-hmm. for just the overall theme that, that you all were, were pushing for the whole, the whole piece. And I think, you know, picking up on that equity theme, it... it it does. It is immersed in the entire report, right? That this is needs to be an investment in Rhode Island and equitably in Rhode Island, and especially 
impacting those that were hardest hit by the pandemic, who not coincidentally were, were folks who often struggled before the pandemic too. And so the next recommendation is $50 million in the creation of neighborhood trusts and qualified census tracts, putting the money in the communities that need it most. And, and I think really importantly, providing the decision-making to the communities that need it most and know, know where the mo- biggest need is. So as you were having conversations about the trust, what are some of the uh, investments that community leaders were most excited about or that they were most interested in, in being able to make with, with this funding? Sure. I, I don't know that it was that people spoke about this is what we would do so much as the interest in having working with the community to decide what they would want to do. So, you know, we, we talked a lot about place-based initiatives. And I think another theme through the recommendations is that, you know, all of these issues are interrelated, right? It was, we talked about housing and needing to have supportive housing for people who may have behavioral health issues or other issues and workforce development. So people really see a need to make sure that all of these things are, are integrated. But this initiative is really, again, sort of a dramatically different way of thinking about how government funds can be used, which is to say to people in a community, if you can raise some other monies, we will give you some funds to come together. And it's it's challenging. It's not an easy thing to do, to come together to figure out what you want to do as a community in your city. And it's only funds that go to the qualified census tracts, which are primarily, you know, mostly in in Providence, but also some in Central Falls and Woonsocket. So it's it's a different way. I mean, we heard from people who who wanted to have control over the funds, not money that came through a, a nonprofit, not money that came directly from the state, but funds that the community sh- could decide together what made sense for them to do. Are there models that you've seen elsewhere in the U.S. or in other countries of standing up these neighborhood trusts, the governance? Well, there there are models about like place-based initiatives. There's one in Boston. I'm looking at Mike. Yeah, the and Boston that, Dudley Street Neighborhood uh, Initiative is one. The the community the, development financial institutions are kind of a flavor of that, although it's not, you know, the governance is probably not just the community. I have to say that there were not a lot of models to draw from that, you know, perhaps we didn't do as much uh, research in other countries, but certainly in the United States, there's not a lot of models to draw from because this isn't the way we do business. So right. when we talk about investing in communities, we actually talk about investing in government agencies and nonprofits to provide service to those communities, not to in the communities themselves. And so, I, you know, there's many challenges around that, but we heard loud and clear from our steering committee that they actually wanted the people in the community to get the direct benefit of the funding. And and so that's, you know, that's what that's what this is about. We hope that we hope that the policymakers pick up this approach. We're seeing, you know, for example, one neighborhood builders here in Rhode Island is, you know, arguably moving down that path. They haven't actually assembled a big range of services outside of housing, but certainly they they see this model of place-based initiatives and in they have, you know, they have a board that is is reflective to some degree of the community. So, 
Well, you know, I, I do think that, you know, as, as part of this, the, the focus, uh, you know, explicitly on equity, on racial equity, socioeconomic equity is really incredible. And it, it's great to see from from the Rhode Island Foundation, from RIPEC and EPI. And it's something that, you know, with BCG, we're working across a number of states and with healthcare organizations. And that focus on equity at the forefront has been something that's been different than we've seen in these efforts before. I mean, even thinking back to, to some of the funding, you know, when, when we were in the administration, it was a consideration, but it wasn't necessarily at the very top. And mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing. And, and I think it's a, a great way to kind of shift the balance back to the folks who really need uh, the support. And speaking of support, immediate relief is, is the last recommendation. Jo- Jonathan, any questions for, for Mike and Linda on that? Yeah, I, you know, what's, what's, what's great about your $50 million recommendation is it's fairly in line with what the, what the governor has been out there with. If you combine, you know, his, his push for small business relief with, you know, other areas for immediate relief and some of the housing, do you have, and I'm sure, like, in your interviews, you certainly heard, you know, all sorts of things on this topic. Are you envisioning in any in particular investments or things that are particularly uh, important with this $50 million? So I'm going to let Linda pick, pick up the specifics, but just, you know, we recognize that this money doesn't, does not actually meet the, the guidelines that we, set, that we set out in terms of sustainable and transformational. But there was a, definitely a feeling of the steering committee that we could not ignore this particular, this particular area. So go ahead, Linda. Right. The, well, I, I don't think we have a – the steering committee, you know, it, in the recommendation outlined some broad areas, right? I think the important thing is that the monies would go to the nonprofits who uh, know what needs are coming – what the needs of people are who are coming through their doors or calling them on their phones. Some examples might be while there's a significant amount of rental relief available for people, in order to qualify, you uh, have to be evicted for nonpayment of rent, right? There are many people – where the landlord's just, people are up to date on the rent, the landlord just says, I want my apartment back. Technically, those folks can't qualify for that for rental assistance. So this might be money that would be used to provide first month rent and down payment for people who don't qualify for the, for the rental assistance. It could just be somebody coming in. We know food insecurity remains a big issue for folks, even you know, the, the increased SNAP benefits sort of have, have gone away. During the pandemic, we had the highest food insecurity in in 20 years. So it may be that people are coming in and they get a food voucher or, you know, whatever the, it's really just to meet whatever the local needs are. There are people who didn't qualify for the income relief that the federal government provided through the stimulus payments. So maybe it's just giving somebody some cash assistance or fixing their car or whatever. So we did want to make sure that there was money available just to meet individual needs in in the communities. So maybe it's worth like talking a little bit about some of the areas we've touched on broadly around on around implementation. You know, we we talked about the fact that you know, this money's got to be spent by the end of 26, but obligated by the end of 24. A lot of these recommendations uh, are tied into investments in infrastructure. Infrastructure can take a few years to, to, to put together. You have recommended some strategic plans as well. And on top of that, it's really been six months, right? We've This money's uh, been sitting in a bank account now for about six months. How are you guys thinking about the logistics, just overall, of getting this money out and timing and when it really needs to start getting out the door? Yeah, I can start. I mean, we very much 
wanted this money to be spent deliberately, and we've included some strategic plans, but I don't think it necessarily means that you have to wait for strategic plans. I, I think there are, you know, for example, we know we need a step-down facility for people at Eleanor Slater. I'm not sure we need a strategic plan to start that kind of work. <laughs> so, so I do think there is a need to start spending this money soon, and I hope the legislature gets to it. At the same time, you know, I think we can be deliberate and planful with this. So I think I'm hoping they could strike a balance where some of this money can go out the door relatively easily. I, I, I would int- be interested in, Lisa, you and Jonathan, talking about this because you both were in government during the COVID response. I mean, government, state government performed, you know, remarkably well in terms of getting a large amount of money out the door. Now, you know, arguably some of that was for very specific sleeves of, you know, building a hospital, buying PPE, you know, doing vaccines, testing. But the feeling that we had as a group in the steering committee and and I have personally is that government and the related quasi-government providers out there are not set up for this level of change and investment and that, you know, one of the things we often do in government is ignore the need for additional management capacity when things come up. And in particular in a small state where we're thin, like we can't, you know, we can't grab a team of 25 people, you know, to, to throw at a problem. So I think we need to pay attention to this. I think it's something that people don't actually want to focus on that much. I've even heard, you know, you know, seeing on Twitter, you know, someone said there's plenty of government employees to deal with this. So, so I'd be interested in your thoughts as to is is this a, is a serious issue as as I think and as the steering committee and the Rhode Island Foundation has has put out, or or is this something that government can can adapt to and, and recognize the complexity of this, which I think is a little different than, than the pandemic response, which was kind of all public health, all kind of in one direction. Well, I guess I would say from the, the pandemic response, it was an all hands on deck moment where, you know, Mike, you mentioned we don't have 25 people sitting around who can, who can reallocate. Actually, that's what we did in Rhode Island for the whole of government response. We pulled you know, Steve King from Quonset, right? He became our, our PPE lead. So it, it was a moment where it was such the number one priority. We were able to pull many people out of their day jobs for a concerted COVID response. We also were able to bring in some folks uh, from the private sector. So Ken Brindamore, who'd previously stepped in to help with fixing the UHIP system, was brought back and he was our testing lead for COVID. And so it was, we did have the unique ability at that time to pull together every available, both high caliber person and just the arms and legs that we needed to be able to, to respond immediately. And part of that was, you know, some, so much of the, the expenses were obvious, right? Testing supplies, PPE, the field hospitals. And so I, I think it's a different, a very different moment in time now where the the pandemic seems to be moving more towards an endemic phase, the government needed to get back to its normal business. And so now there's not that same type of ability to to grab people, to to form a a central team. I think of it more as when we needed to deploy funding very quickly for the state opioid response grants. 
a much smaller amount of money, but at the time it was, I think, probably, Jonathan, one of the biggest... Oh, yeah, 100, 100 plus million dollars. Yeah, but, you know, huge, huge amount of money for Rhode Island, and we pulled at EOHHS together with BHDDH and other state agencies, really a SWAT team with from Department of Administration, folks from procurement who could help get the money out the door. So that was a, a SWAT team effort that I think was successful, but it did require quite a bit of effort. And I, I think that as you look at, you know, 1.1 billion versus 100 million, it's a different scale, as you said, <laughs> different complexity, multiple topics. So that infrastructure, I, I share your view, Mike, that it's a big area of importance and likely can't be done with the steady state level of resources. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, you know, this is going to be going on for years. I mean, not only uh, will the spending happen through 26, but then there'll be reporting infrastructure on the results for years after that. And it's and it's going to be a challenge on the on the hiring and the permanency side. I mean, it, it certainly needs to exist for years. It certainly needs to be integrated into to state business processes, but, you know, finding the right individuals, and it'll probably have to be a combination of, you know, some contracting help, some permanent employees, and there will have to be some creativity. But it's it's the length of time, as Lisa said, that really is the is the driving reality that we're all gonna gonna have to, to deal with. I would hope that this can be a catalyst for looking at what state government structures need to be to to deliver the services that we've outlined in these buckets. I mean, again, to me, pre-pandemic, all these issues existed. The pandemic, it, now having these funds, just as it's a catalyst for addressing some issues that have been here for a long time, this should be a catalyst for making sure that the state government structures to administer these programs are strong and appropriately sized. And, you know, we we need that leadership. We need the management leadership to get it done. And hopefully that's where we're going to head, whether from the executive branch or also the, the general assembly asking questions and pushing back. So two final to questions for mm-hmm. you, Mike and Linda. I can and a third. And for, from me and, and John, <laughs> ask a, a third or, or fourth. Uh, Mike asks questions too, so we got to watch out for that. Yes, I like that. <laughs> and Linda, Linda has a few, you know, that she's saved up. Um, one of the things that kind of introduced this report in, in some of the early, earlier interviews that, that you and Neil Steinberg have done was we don't want to wake up in 10 years and say, well, where did the money go? Mm-hmm. What is the Rhode Island that you'd like to see in 10 years if we've used this money well? I mean, I'll start. And I think this was one of the more exciting parts of this because not everything we recommended is going to be adopted. And certainly it's not going to be adopted in the way we proposed it. But hopefully we've laid some markers down for a change in policy priorities and to longer term as resources become available or as this flexibility in budgets to focus on things that can really make a difference. So it's interesting to me that when we lay out these most urgent priorities for Rhode Island, that we actually don't invest very much state resources in these things right now. You could say that there's a fair amount of Medicaid money going to behavioral health services, but certainly that's not the case in substance abuse in terms of state money. And so when you know we've made these decisions and then sometimes we're surprised when certain areas that we've underinvested for a long time become 
problem. So I'm, I'm hoping that, that this will change our approach. But in terms of, you know, I would hope that we would have, from RIPEC's point of view, my personal point of view, a more, more prosperous economy and certainly a more, you know, a better way of life for a lot, a lot more people. I mean, that's what we all want, I think. I would second that last <laughs> statement that Mike made in terms of a fair and prosperous economy for everybody. I would say just that we would not see any homelessness at all, that we have a right-sized state government, and that we have, it's also a little dovetailing with what Mike is saying, that right-sized state investments in these important areas, because we have disinvested as a state and are now sort of building back with these funds. I think another large area is making sure that people who are doing what we called essential jobs during the during COVID, that we have shifted the view to make sure that people are appropriately paid, particularly in the care economy, that the care economy is lifted up so that people, whether that's in childcare or providing care to people with disabilities or seniors, our growing population of seniors, that the people who care for people are paid a, a fair wage for that for that work. I mean, that is a sector of our economy that I think has been very not highlighted or respected. It gained some respect during COVID. Let's keep that going. Anything else you guys want to add that uh, you feel like you didn't get a chance to touch on? No, I just want to thank Linda and Rachel from the Economic Progress Institute. It was a great partnership. Justine Oliva um, from my team who was involved. I just want to recognize her and Ben Shumate who came on later in the process. But it's, it's for me, just been, from a personal point of view, been a tremendous learning experience. And certainly I, you know, change my a point of view or, or get a deeper understanding of a lot of things through this process. I would say same. We also want to thank Karen Lowe, who was hired um, specifically to work on this and did the yeoman's work. I mean, transcribed 60 interviews, which was amazing, and, and did a lot of work on writing the report. You know, Working together has been great. I'm very proud of the work that the steering committee did and what the report provides or recommends. And, you know, now we'll see what happens in terms of implementation. Um, and my, my last question for you, Mike and Linda, is is the most controversial that I'll ask, which is, how did you think about writing a report and actually naming a report that didn't include the words road or R-I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was tough. That was a tough one. But I think the Rhode Island Foundation did the naming. Right, they did. <laughs> so we'll thank, but, we'll thank Neil for that. Then. Yes. Yeah. I, I still want to create my anti-hunger coalition called Rye Bread, but I haven't gotten there yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, Linda, Mike, this has been absolutely uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, maybe we can think of an excuse to have you back someday. Thank you so yeah. much for having us. Thank you. Great. Yeah, really. It was great. Thank you, and thank you for listening. Thanks for taking a deep dive with 30,000 Leagues. This episode was hosted by Jonathan Wilmer and Lisa Vera Weiss and produced by Kelly Harris-Crawley and David Yoakum. You can find more episodes at 30,000leagues.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Keep safe, keep calm, and narwhal on. Did you see me start shaking my boots when you said this is the most controversial? <laughs> <laughs>